This is Lab Medicine Rounds, a curated podcast for physicians, laboratory professionals, and students. I'm your host, Justin Kreuter, the bowtie bandit of blood, a transfusion medicine pathologist at Mayo Clinic. Today, we're rounding with Dr. Ross Reichard, a forensic pathologist at Mayo Clinic, who is also the prior vice chair of quality for the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology and current medical director for Mayo Clinic Quality Academy an Associate Professor of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology. Dr. Reichert is here with us to discuss what every pathologist should know about the legal system. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Reichert. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. This is a topic that I'm going to be learning a lot from. Maybe you could kick it off for us and like, why is it important for pathologists to know a thing or two about the legal system? Well, as a practicing pathologist, whether you fully appreciate it or not, you're already engaged with the legal system, primarily through quality assurance programs. And that's really important to appreciate because, you know, statutes, they vary from state to state. I mean, there are some things that are pretty consistent across the country. You know, in the quality assurance program, it could protect your organization from liability or malpractice if based on someone else who's practicing in your organization if you're following it appropriately, but also your quality assurance program, if not managed properly, could also put your institution at risk. So an example of that would be, you know, you have a, an event with a patient event or a safety event or such, and, you know, you form a, a committee to evaluate what happened. So this is a peer review group and what that's called as a review organization. And so, you know, our society has deemed it very important for physicians to be able to have peer review and to improve the care of medical practice without the fear of being sued for malpractice. But if you don't manage this properly, you may put you, your organization and that information at risk. You keep things as a small group. It's confidential. Information from those works aren't released to a large group. You're fine. But what people may not understand and what, what I've seen is, oh, this is a great improvement. Let's email everybody we know about how we learned about this. And when you do that, you've now removed the confidentiality component and you might make this subpoenable or discoverable. So whether you appreciate it or not, you're, you're probably already engaged. Should be be one point, I guess. <laughs> wow, it certainly hits home probably for uh, most of our listeners as we're a collection of our listeners are physicians, lab professionals, and students. So certainly the physicians, laboratory professionals, quality is something that is really front of mind, probably even more so than the legal system. I really hadn't given as much thought to that. And that's given that I've been to many of those morbidity mortality meetings where we're reviewing cases. And I know that, and I guess I've always thought about it, is that canned language about what we're talking about here is confidential, which is great for, as you say, really fostering some of those critical discussions on how we go further. And you're, I think, spot on with that example of you learn something great, you really want to disseminate it as that natural reflux. Maybe can you dive into some of these points because I think this is starting to resonate with our audience. Even though we're not going to a court of law, quality practices are something that all of us are involved in. Could you unpack those a little bit so that listeners can think about how they're engaging in that? 
we're doing it more often than we think. We just haven't set it in the legal setting of it before because oftentimes it doesn't come up. It's only when it comes up that people think about it from that perspective. And so if you have a solid quality assurance program, for example, and you're following that, if you have someone that does something erroneous, you're larger organization, the third party would be protected. If you have the program and you're not following through correctly and you have someone who's failing PT and competencies and such, you know, your organization could be held liable for the harm that that person did. That would be one example. And the second point, sort of at a larger level, as a pathologist and a physician, and, and hopefully it's only through work-related activities and not personal, but there's a high probability eventually you'll be involved in some sort of legal proceeding, whether you're a fact witness, an expert witness, and hopefully not a defendant, but there's a reasonable probability that you will at some point engage very directly with the legal system. Do you have any tips or pointers if that comes to pass, how you proceed? Because that's not something I remember learning in medical school. I certainly got the chance to see some courtroom work when I was on my forensic rotation in uh, training. Probably most of us aren't too uh, savvy on that. The number one thing is if you are involved in something, I would understand what your role is which is very critical. So, you know, there's really two types of witnesses. And so one is a fact witness. And so this is a person that has witnessed the crime, so, so to speak. So you're the standard by who saw something happen and you're going to testify to that. And the role of pathology, specifically, that would be you're the one that made the diagnosis. So you're just saying, I made the diagnosis of X. It's this type of neoplasm, for example. That's in contrast to an expert witness is usually not initially directly involved in the case and is brought in to issue their opinion about that particular case. And so expert witnesses are being paid for their time and are doing this really at, at their own pleasure, if you will. They've willingly engaged to be in this role as an expert. So I think those are two really breaking big categories, but really knowing what your role is and, and what are the expectations of what you're going to do. Oh, that's really helpful. If I can back up to an earlier point you were making, I think about the importance of having a good quality plan and following it. Because I think that's something that probably, again, a lot of the listeners that resonates with, you have uh, been involved in quality in many leadership quality capacities here at Mayo Clinic and probably have seen and thought about a lot of these quality plans. Do you have thoughts to give us maybe some fresh eyes? If I say, gee, I, maybe I should look at my quality plan. How can I know it's good? Or what are some first initial steps I can take to shoring it up a little bit? Making sure that you really do have a robust plan and that you're following what that plan is at a very high level, that's easy to say. But when some groups get in trouble as they have a plan and then they don't follow it and they don't stick to what they're doing and people think, oh, this is tedious, you know, why am I reviewing this SOP? Why am I signing off on this? Why am I checking these competencies? Why did I have to come in and review this histology for, you know, its quality? And it seems kind of tedious, but each one of those parts is what puts together a really robust quality plan. Part of it is understanding what really is the definition of malpractice and how you would get to understanding what malpractice is. Because I think a lot of people don't understand what that means. They think, okay, I got the diagnosis wrong. Shoot, that's malpractice. I'm going to get sued. 
or something happened here and that, oh, I'm going to get sued. When you understand the different components of it, it, it helps kind of ease you a little bit, but also helps you to have a framework of how you could approach developing a quality assurance program. Join us for this year's Surgical Pathology Symposium to be held in London, May 2nd through May 5th, 2023. Visit mayocliniclabs.com forward slash surgepath2023 for more information. Probably for our students, it would be really helpful to elaborate on that. Probably a, a good reminder for a lot of us in practice too. What does that mean, malpractice? So there's really four key elements to meet that. The first is you have to have a duty or an obligation to treat the patients to a standard of care. And so for pathologists, that's specimens in our laboratories. And so really the key component is the duty and the standard of care. Standard of care is critical, and I'll come back to that. The second thing is there must be a dereliction from that, which just means negligence. So you have to, there has to be proven that there was negligence in providing the, the standard of care. The third is during the dereliction of duty, the patient has to have been harmed either by your actions or your inactions. And then fourth is damages must be demonstrated. There's a couple of high level points I'll kind of focus in on. And one is the standard of care. And that's the standard of care at the time you're practicing medicine. Okay. So like if the standard is to evaluate this particular neoplasm or this blood sample a certain way, and you're following that, and there's some unfortunate outcome, you've been following the standard of care. And that's a very, very important part of, of how this would be seen through the courts and whether it would even proceed. If the lawsuit's filed, you know, years later and goes to court, they don't get to apply the new standard of care now that there's been new molecular testing or what have you. And so I think that's a really key element. The other thing that I think is really important to emphasize is a patient is harmed by your actions or inactions. One of the things that I've seen from a practical standpoint is people are like, you know, oh, this case got reviewed or seen by something at a tumor board. You know, I'm not sure. I agree. Let's work it up. Let's do some more stains. Let's think about it. And this is that huge rock of a case that's hard to get moving. And the reality is, from my perspective, at least, is having been in these various roles, is that the longer you sit on something, the more likely there is for patient harm to be done. You go, oh, man, I missed this diagnosis, and someone looked at it the next day. You want to fix that and get that out there as quickly as possible because you don't want that person getting chemotherapy that doesn't need it or wrong chemotherapy or delay of treatment. So when you know something, our tendency is to kind of hunker down and some organizations, they call risk management. They do all these things that just take time. And I try to emphasize the sense of urgency of we need to reconcile this issue and get this to the patient as soon as possible because a day or two different might be whether the patient is harmed or not harmed. Those are great things to key our audience into, right? So thinking about our SOPs, and this can be really anybody in laboratory medicine, if you're listening from the clinical side, also questioning and engaging in these conversations with your laboratory professionals about, you know, are we maintaining that? Is our process that standard of care? Has the state of care moved or advanced and are we keeping up with that? And then that sense of urgency, because I hear you wanting to be cautious, but certainly 
in transfusion medicine, there's some things we think about, you know, the, the sun cannot set on this. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I think probably one of the best examples of that, and not to dabble close to your area, because I'll be way out of my league very quickly, but you know, like deep venous thrombosis prevention, think about how much that's changed in the last 20 years, 10 years, you know, even the last few years, really, but is you know, the standard of care has dramatically evolved and it's varies by procedures and situations. That's one where it doesn't mean you're not going to have a pulmonary thromboembolism and potentially harm or death from that, but are you following the standard of care at that time with that particular patient? For some of us, you know, how we keep up with this should be second nature to us in terms of maintaining our certification, getting our continuing education hours, hopefully bringing the education back to advancing our policies, procedures. Thanks uh, as a blood banker always makes my heart go pitter patter to hear somebody talking about making sure we actually follow our SOP, <laughs> the legal system that's really quality changes. I'm probably, if I'm honest with myself, I'm a little harder to update myself on maybe more broader the legal system as it pertains to quality management. What do you recommend for people who want to take more of an active or deliberate role in keeping up? So there's a few things. One is national and regional and local organizations are following this and they're looking for big changes and they'll notify their members. And so pay attention. You know, sometimes people skip over that part of the communications from those groups, but that's a really good you know place to, to learn and which means you need to be involved and, and be part of those groups. And that's one way to do it. I think another one from like a, a practical standpoint is really understand your practice from end to end and ask questions that are informed questions. For example, hey, this specimen's coming from across the state lines. Does it matter? Which state is it coming from? Does that matter? Was it sent to me directly by the provider or did it come to, go to a pathologist and then was referred to me? In big organizations like Maya, we often have people behind the scenes that are asking those questions and managing it so we don't see it bubble up. But if you understand your whole practice from beginning to end and ask those thoughtful questions, sometimes you can see things in the media. Like I watch for big legal things that have made it to the media. And then oftentimes because they've gone to court, those records are public. So you can actually drill down into it if you really want to geek out on it and learn more. But I think the other thing is like, you really need like a true like advisor, you know, an attorney that understands the questions you're asking. Like someone for compliance is different than like civil malpractice, which is different than criminal. And so I think knowing that, and, and from my perspective, <laughs> the last person you, you want to get legal advice from is like another physician. I mean, I sort of joke, there's a few things that physicians stick their toe in the water that I really don't want. I don't want my physician to be my pilot. I don't want them to be my investment advisor. I don't want them to be my attorney. I say that jokingly, sort of, but you know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there and, and, you know, physicians are smart. And so they think they understand it, but oftentimes they've gotten their information on antidotes from their experiences or from friends and, and they don't quite have the, the whole breadth of the situation underhand. And so I would say, make sure you get to a, a trusted source. 
a lot of people probably don't have uh, attorneys necessarily on retainer, but I imagine this show, this podcast, a lot of the big theme of it is is connecting lab medicine and the clinical practice. But I think this might be a nice example of connecting lab medicine and maybe our legal team at our institution. Can you kind of give that an example of, is there a, a connection there that you've fostered and developed a relationship about asking for clarity and guidance on certain things? Yes, I would, I would say a number of people in the legal department know me pretty well. <laughs> and, and for me, for asking questions and bouncing things off of them. So within Mayo, so first of all, and most organizations are going to have this, there's an on-call person for legal and so you can basically call the operator and say, I need to speak to whoever's on call for the legal team. Just like there's somebody in charge for administration or nursing, there's somebody out there and they can find that. So like, if you have a pressing question, that's often a good place to go. They'll triage it and maybe get it to the right subspecialty. I now know within Mayo system, like I'm concerned about how something was managed. I might direct it to one particular attorney in general, or if it's another one, I might call them just because I happen to know what their areas expertise are and what they're doing you know and at least within the mayo system i don't want to make this too mayoized you're having a attorney client privilege when you talk to them so that's protected there's no need to be afraid to, of talking to them and there's no need to be afraid that you're like causing problems for other people when you raise this in fact they very much appreciate being made aware of things when you're making an informed decision like okay you know this is what came through here and i saw this or this patient did this and is saying this, sometimes notifying people and letting them start a file on it, get some background, and again, allows them to be proactive instead of reactive when something pops out either in the media or like in a lawsuit or whatever, you know, weeks or months after the fact. As a forensic pathologist, I'm probably more comfortable than other physicians talking to attorneys. <laughs> you got to look at them that are on your team as your friend and the benefits that they can provide. Brilliant. So making that connection as a positive thing. And, and certainly I also keyed on to your response about the fact that larger centers, there are people that are working behind the scenes to make a lot of things happen. But certainly a lot of our trainees might go off into smaller practices and it's important to take notice of these issues, to be thinking about these issues and to develop the relationship with who is the institutional legal system or person is an important thing. One last question I have is, mm -hmm. you know, so you have an upcoming conference where you're really going to be elaborating on this further. What are the details on that? Yeah, so it's the 2023 International Surgical Pathology Symposium that's hosted by Mayo. This year, it's going to be in London, the first week of May. The website for registration will go live December 23rd. So it's a it's a very neat conference. We'll be back in person. It's tailored to give people some space to explore whatever cities we're in, but have some really focused topics. It moves at a quick pace, so I think it's an engaging format. Awesome. So. Thank you so much for rounding with us, Dr. Reichard. My pleasure. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions via email. Please direct any suggestions to mcleducation at mayo.edu and reference this podcast. If you've enjoyed Lab Medicine Rounds podcast, please subscribe. Until our next rounds together, we encourage you to continue to connect lab medicine and the clinical practice through insightful conversations. Mm -hmm.